1: to turn Penelope's world upside down.
0: Mm, this is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridget in season three, now playing only on Netflix.
2: I mine my personal life for things to write about. I was always very aware, even at a really young age, that if I want to be a writer, I've got to live a life. I've got to experience things that I probably don't want to experience. I need to go through things that I probably don't want to, but it's going to give me fuel to write about. I knew that. I remember writing in my journal when I was 16 saying, like, I think I want to be a writer, but I've got a lot of living to do first.
1: to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the incredibly warm Mari Andrew. If you don't recognise Mari's name, which you likely do anyway, you'll no doubt know and adore the illustration she posts on her Instagram account at ByMariAndrew. In 2015, after her father passed away, Mari began posting a watercoloured illustration a day onto her Instagram page as a way to express grief, yes, but to also spread light. Now, Mari boasts over 1 million Instagram followers and is a New York Times bestselling author who has published two books, Am I There Yet? and My Inner Sky, the latter of which she wrote while recovering from an unexpected illness that left her paralysed for an entire month while living in Spain. In this chat, we talk to Mari about why she's so unafraid to harness loneliness, her relationship with grief, and how she manages to write deeply private stories for her public audience without unleashing past trauma. Mari is such a delight, and we are so grateful that we had this chat with her, and we can't wait for you to hear it. Here's Mari. Mari, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited to have you here. I'm
2: so thrilled to be here. Thank you. I wish we were all together in person, but next time.
3: (laughs) If only, if only. Maybe your next book by then we'll all be back together. (laughs) What do we think? (laughs) We start every In Conversation episode with the same question and that is to ask, what were you like as a kid?
2: Oh, what a sweet question. I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of your guests would say they were pretty weird. I think people who contribute art and writing in any way as they get older, people who think a lot, people who are drawn to these kind of alternative career paths were probably... A little strange as kids. I was really kind of an outsider and that built an observation muscle really early on. I was always a little removed. So I was always watching people. And now that skill comes in very handy as a writer at the time, uh, didn't have a lot of benefits.
1: Mari, you do strike me as a bit of a dreamer, like having consumed a lot of your work for a very long time. It is obvious that you think and dream about things very deeply. When you were a kid and when you thought about your future, what did you dream about?
2: a different dream every day. I was really drawn from a young age to people who were really authentic. I wouldn't have had the vocabulary for that. But I loved people who marched to their own beat. I loved wacky older women who had these really interesting lives. I loved watching people who traveled a lot. I loved books. And I loved books, especially about girls going on adventures. And I was really drawn to people who were kind of these free spirit bohemians and I think that's kind of what I've become, which is great. I think my five-year-old self would be quite proud. Well, one quote that stood
3: out to us from your book was, I never quite click with any subgroup, culture, or subculture. I always wind up the odd one out, even in the groups of odd ones out. Do you think that sense of kind of looking from the outside in shaped who you are today?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it continues to shape who I am. I think for whatever reason... I've always felt a little different from other people. I kind of always felt like everyone's got something figured out that I don't. Like there's something other people get that I'm just not quite getting. And that put me in this kind of outsider status. Maybe it didn't look that way, but that's how it felt. And that shapes my ability to really notice things, I think. I think anyone who wants to develop that observation muscle and that attentiveness should put themselves in the position of observer, whether that means traveling or spending time with groups of people they normally wouldn't or spending time in large cities where at some point or another you're going to feel like an outsider. That experience is quite vital for really paying attention. And I think that's what writing is really is paying attention.
1: I mean, you've just said it It makes you incredible incredibly good at your job, but has any part of that experience or having that personality trait been lonely?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's been very lonely. I think loneliness is kind of a through line of my emotional landscape. I'm always a little lonely. This past year, I think so many of us have felt lonely and I've been thinking a lot about what that means and why we so immediately want to oppress that feeling. We want to get out of it. It's really uncomfortable. And I've been trying to think, what is the beauty of loneliness? We're all going to feel it. We all feel it at some point, some of us more than others. I certainly feel it all the time, all day, every day in in some way or another. And what's the gift there? What can we learn from lonely places?
3: I imagine if that loneliness is kind of omnipresent, the first time your work connected with people would have felt really amazing and really joyful. What was that first time that you kind of put something out into the atmosphere and saw people come back to you with connection?
2: I love that question because that's exactly what it was like. It was so magical because I felt like kind of an outsider my whole life. I started making really good friends in my early 20s, but I didn't really have friends before that. So I always kind of felt like friendships and community were just going to be something that I struggled with. And then as I got older, that changed. But I never felt like a relatable person. I didn't really think I could write about my life because I didn't think people could relate to it. And I remember the first couple messages I got from strangers on Instagram. This is when I was first starting out six years ago. One was from this like gorgeous cheerleader in the Midwest of America, someone I would have like never thought that I could really relate to as a teenager. And then one was this older man from Singapore. And I thought, wow, these are two people I never would have thought would be drawn to my life, what I'm saying. And it was so beautiful. It's like, wow, art and writing really does its job. It is the bridge that connects us to other people. And what a gorgeous thing and how fortunate to be able to do that.
1: Mari, that is so surprising to me because I think one of the key things I think about when I consume your work is that sense of relatability, like you feel like an instinct to share it on your Instagram stories or send it to your friends, like your work is shared among my friends probably more than anyone else. Has it been really surprising to you with all of this in mind that your career has blown up because of that sense of relatability that people can think, yeah, that's me too.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first year, it it was quite shocking. It was every time I got another follower or message and then eventually people reading my book, it always surprised me. It was like, no matter what, it surprised me that people could relate to my dating woes or then my relationship woes or my career foibles and all of that. And I kept thinking, what is this? What's happening here? And then I got to realize any time that anyone is honest about what they're going through, people are going to relate because we're all so similar. And it's not me having this special life that is universally relatable. It's me being honest. And there are plenty of writers who do that. And whenever someone is very honest, ironically, about the specifics of their life. So, you know, the more specific they get, the more universal it feels. And I see that time and time again.
3: I feel like for a lot of the people in my life, the first time they truly connected with you in your work was your discussions around grief and how you present grief in all forms or even complicated relationships with parents in all forms. I think the first time I came across you, Mari, was your Mother's Day post where you had all the different kinds of feelings that people might have on Mother's Day and you were kind of reaching out to the people who probably hadn't felt seen on Mother's Day because your post was about those who are grieving mothers or aren't close to their mothers or have a complicated relationship with a day that so many others are jubilant and celebrating. Talk to us about that. I mean, your career really skyrocketing did coincide with you losing your father in 2015. Do you think going through that experience and being open with your audience was really crucial to kind of building that bond with your
0: followers?
2: Yeah, it was such a profound moment in my life. And the way I continue to process it, it's a continual source of creative fuel that I think does really intimately connect me with people. There is this intimacy with people who have experienced grief on any level. And I want to talk very honestly about it. With the Mother's Day post, I'll very often get the question, you know, what inspires you? And more often than not, I'm inspired by things I don't like. (laughs) And one of the things I don't like is scrolling through Instagram and seeing the same kind of posts over and over and no room or discussion for anything else. So I remember like Mother's Day, and I have a perfectly lovely relationship with my mom. I'm not a mother. So this didn't even really apply to me. But I'm scrolling through seeing either mothers of children celebrating themselves rightfully, or people celebrating their moms and no room for any, else, And I'm thinking, oh, who's being left out of this? Or what can I add to this? And that's how that came about. And then the more that I talk about grief, the more I try to make space for all kinds of grief, I had a really complicated relationship with my dad, that's not something I was open about when I first started drawing about it. But now I wrote a lot about it in my new book. And I feel like the complicated relationships are probably the more common that just aren't getting a lot of airtime. So that's something that I try to bring a little more gray to the black and white human experience.
1: And you do do that when it comes to writing about your relationship with your dad. I mean, you hadn't seen him in years before he died. And I want to know, what have you learned over the last sort of six or so years about working through grief that's messy and complicated?
2: I think anytime we're working through something messy or complicated, we crave stories and we crave rituals. Humans love rituals. We've been doing them for 200,000 years. And we're also natural storytellers. And when there's not a lot of stories about something we're going through, it makes us feel really alone. And when there aren't rituals to work Through them, it makes people feel like they're doing it wrong or that they should feel a certain way. And that's really harmful. So, in grieving my dad, I didn't go to his funeral, which I didn't feel was going to be a meaningful experience for me, but I made my own memorial for him. That's a ritual that I created. And I really encourage people who are going through these complicated, messy times of life to mark that with their own ritual. This is something that I learned about and wrote about when I was in the process of freezing my eggs. And I thought, why isn't there a ritual around this? It's a pretty intense experience and it's a pretty profound experience. And I remember giving myself the last shot. You have to give yourself these shots in the stomach. It's terrible. And doing my last one, my friend called me and did a little champagne toast. And it meant so much that we were marking this really complicated experience with you know, a ritual and saying this matters and it's important, even though there might not be room for it in society. There's no card, you know, you can buy to mark this occasion.
3: It was such an interesting part of that chapter where you spoke about rituals in that often we do them to make the people around us feel comfortable. You had this really poignant line. I wish I wrote it down about how, You not going to your father's funeral might have meant that you were receiving judgment from the people around you, but ultimately we have to do what's best for us and not be kind of like performative just for other people to feel comfortable. What is it about you though? Because I feel like so many people in that situation would go, I'm going to people please, I'm just going to go, I don't want to stir the pot or I don't want to make other people feel like that. What do you think it's about you that is so strong and has that resolve to be like, no, this is the right path for me and I'm going to do this in a way that suits me?
2: Well, it takes a while. It takes a while for me to process enough to get to that place. I think like everyone, I'm really susceptible to what people think of me and what's expected of me. And that was one instance where I just felt like something about this doesn't seem quite right. And I ended up doing the memorial for my dad, the little ritual that I invented myself, which was so meaningful and beautiful. I did that like five months after he died. So it took time to really move through my feelings and think, what do I really need here? What is the thing that's going to help me mark this? And what's kind of ironic is that these rituals are created by society to help us move through these really difficult things. And they end up kind of being stifling, right? But then, If we take back that idea of what is this ritual really for? Well, it's to mark this thing that's really important. What's the best way to do that? I'm all for people, you know, creating their own ways to go through, you know, really profound life experiences.
1: Mari, I would argue that for so many of your followers, they would consider you incredibly wise. And I want to know with that idea in mind, I mean you're laughing now, I wonder is there a pressure that comes with a description or label like that? Like do you ever feel pressure to be publicly making sense of things because that's what people expect of
2: you? It's funny to get that descriptor because – I never give advice. I only write about what I'm going through. And so I do get requests to write about certain things, you know, like, can you please write about a friend breakup or anything that people are going through individually. And it's sort of funny that they interpret this honesty as sort of a wisdom because it's, super messy. It's like hilariously messy. Like I think if you actually read this, you probably don't want to get advice from me. Like you can see that I'm going through a lot here. (laughs) But over the years, it's not a pressure so much as just an awareness of what's really going to serve my audience. And I I have actually my own little rituals for getting kind of in touch with them in my own way. A lot of it's pretty woo woo and spiritual, but it is important for me to feel really connected to people when I'm writing about my own life because they're going to read it. And I try to think what story isn't being told here who might not be Heard here. And that's the way that I get in touch with them. But as far as being wise, whew, that's <laughs> I think I'll, I'll have to reject that one. <laughs> <'cause it's, laughs> that's just uh, not the case.
3: <laughs> I love that so much, Mari, as far as being in touch with your audience. But I'm curious, Zara and I are writers ourselves. We've often written about our personal lives. And I always find it interesting to hear from people and other writers about how they decide what they're ready to share. I feel like it's such a complicated thing to work through, to be like, at what point am I ready to kind of open my life up to the public and kind of potentially unstitch wounds that I have just stitched up in the years (laughs) beforehand? You wrote in this book about a really traumatic experience with Guillain-Barre syndrome. I want to know, how did you know, first of all, that you were ready to write about something as traumatic as that time?
2: That is such a good question. I wonder if you guys can relate to this. I mine my personal life for things to write about. I was always very aware, even at a really young age, that if I want to be a writer, I've got to live a life. I've got to experience things that I probably don't want to experience. I need to go through things that I probably don't want to, but it's going to give me fuel to write about. I knew that. I remember writing in my journal when I was 16 saying like, I think I want to be a writer, but I've got a lot of living to do first. I always knew that I wanted to write my own stories. I was always really drawn to that kind of writing. So what I write, it's not my diary. It's art. It's storytelling. It's storytelling. And there's a lot of processing that goes on first before I start writing about it. There are a lot of text messages. There's a lot of notes in my notes app on my phone. There's a lot of journaling. There's a lot of therapy. So by the time I start writing about it, it is a fully processed experience. And so writing about really difficult things, I can do with some perspective and hindsight. And at the point where I start writing about it, it becomes a piece of writing. I don't write to process things. I write processed things. So it doesn't, trigger me. I wouldn't write about something that triggered me. I don't think that would make for very good writing because it would probably just be like a stream of consciousness. So it's a whole lot of processing before I get to that final step of saying, okay, it's a story now. (laughs) Now I can write about this in a book. So I, I have a bit of distance from it almost to the point where I actually do have to get back in the mindset, you know, listen to music that reminds me of that time or look at old journals and say, oh my gosh, this is really intense what I went through, but I'm not doing it in real time.
1: We wanted to ask you about that time and sort of I guess now get you back in the mindset of that. Time
2: uh, okay. right. In
1: 2017 you went on a work trip to Spain to write your first ever book and it was there that you found that your limbs were starting to feel really really weak. What did you notice about your body at that time?
2: It's hard to even remember because it was so weird there's nothing you can compare it to. I remember my my feet just started feeling really heavy. I remember Googling heavy feet. Like, what is this heaviness? And then my hands as well. It felt like when I was eating, like... Lifting my hands was such an ordeal. And this was over the span of about 48 hours that they just got weaker and weaker. And at the time, I was living in a city in Spain, Granada, but I was traveling outside of it a couple hours outside of it in a really small town and I just kept thinking, well, I must be tired or I must have a muscle issue or something. I mean, my brain could not compute what was happening to my body. And then within a couple of days, I was almost fully paralyzed and was told that I would just have to be in the hospital until I started moving again, which uh, for me was about a month and then about six months of recovery from that experience.
1: Coming up after the break, how Mari leans out of toxic positivity. But first, a word from today's sponsor.
3: What surprised you most about the experience of being paralyzed?
2: Oh, gosh, there's so many things that surprised me. I mean, from a writer's perspective, it was, again, you know, quite interesting to have this experience that not a lot of people do. Like, oh, wow, this is what it's like. It was much worse than I thought it would be. I mean, I, I didn't really think much about it before, but I couldn't believe how horrible it was. And it made me think, oh, my God, there's like so many things that I'm not even conscious of that people are going through. I think that was the most shocking part was I felt like I kind of entered a world of new possibilities for life. Like, wow, there's a lot of ways that people can really suffer. And I wasn't so much hung up on my own suffering as I was thinking, wow i've been living in this different land, and now i've entered this new land and That gave me a tremendous amount of guilt and empathy not in a fun way you know empathy in a in a really difficult, burdensome way. And then the also surprising thing is I attached this narrative to people who had been seriously sick or had gone through a traumatic experience. I'd given them the narrative that, oh, they're going to be so wise and positive and grateful coming out of this. And that is not what I experienced. I was actually really mad about it. And I thought that I was going to come out of it being this wise saint who was just like in love with life and grateful for every day that I could walk or lift a fork. And that wasn't true at all. I was back to being irritated, you know, at things and and also just kind of mad that it happened in the first place. So it, it really kind of warped my understanding of the narratives we have for sick people.
1: How do you process your body suddenly failing you? Because as someone who's sort of experienced some forms of chronic illness in the past, I have often felt very mad at my body. Did you feel this sense of anger at your body and wanting to kind of like shake it almost and be like, please just fix yourself?
2: I felt tremendously mad at it. Yeah, at her. I like to call my body her. I felt like I had just arrived at a beautiful relationship with my body. It took many years, as I think it does for a lot of women. You know, years of insecurities and all kinds of body image issues. And then I had gotten to this place where. I was so grateful to my body for taking me through grief and heartbreak. And I felt real companionship with my body. I felt like we were in this together. And going through grief, I really looked to yoga. I started doing yoga every day and felt such tremendous friendship with my body. And then to get to this point where, wow, I'm really betrayed here, was a shock and yeah, really, really upsetting. I'm still kind of working through That. I'm still coming back to that full embodiment and feeling that I, I am my body and we're, we're still in this together because, I mean, that's what trauma is, is like feeling separated from your own self. And that's exactly how I felt.
3: I mean, the aftershocks of that time were that you did suffer with post-traumatic stress. Did it ever feel like you weren't going to get out of it? I imagine that if you go through this incredibly traumatic experience, you then suffer with aftershocks and flashbacks and just this awful feeling. I think one quote you said is that you felt like you were crushed by apathy. Did it sometimes feel like there was no light at the end of the tunnel?
2: It always felt like there was no light. Probably a lot of people who have suffered from depression and mental health issues know you kind of think, well, this is my life now. We sometimes use depression as a synonym of sadness, which sounds like it's this temporary thing that you're very aware of. That's not been the case for me. The two times that I can identify I've had depression, one of them being this PTSD time, I just thought, well, this is it. This is how I'm going to be. I'm just not going to care about anything forever. And then also continuing to deal with physical issues, I felt like, oh, I'm just never going to enjoy walking again, or I'm just never going to want to do these things I wanted to do. I had planned to move to New York after going to Spain, and during recovery, I thought, Oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And then I thought, well, I don't really like traveling anymore. Depression didn't feel like something I had, it felt like who I was. And I wasn't even aware that it was something I had to get out of. I just thought, well, I guess, you know, my before self was just a lot more energetic, you know? (laughs) And it wasn't until I got out of that that I thought, oh, wow, that was like a seriously dark time.
1: It makes sense then I think that you included a discussion in the book on toxic positivity and how damaging it can be for our discourse. I want to know what it felt like to feel like you were finally going to try to give up striving to be positive about everything all the time almost for the sake of being positive.
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. I wrote this in 2017 when I was, uh, I wrote a lot of this in 2017 when I was recovering from illness. And it's not so much these days, maybe the pandemics kind of softened this a little bit, but I felt like in the zeitgeist at that time, all I heard was choose happiness, think positive. I'd go into a gift shop and all of the little journals would say Your vibe affects your tribe or whatever. Good vibes only. And I thought, how about like, okay vibes? (laughs) And so I was hearing all of this while I was recovering from illness, which again, it didn't even feel like I was marching toward a light at the end of the tunnel. It just felt like I was going to be in the tunnel. It felt like the tunnel was my life. So I had to say, what's here? What's here in the tunnel? What can I see in the tunnel that maybe I couldn't see in the light? What is exactly right in front of me? Because if I'm going to keep looking toward the light, I'm just going to get really frustrated. And that's what happened. Every time I would try to make myself Belong in this new land of the healthy and positive and grateful, I just kind of would fall back down because that wasn't authentic. It's not where I really wanted to be. I wasn't very grateful. You know, none of that applied to me. But when I was fully present to what I was going through, then I could begin to really find some beauty. And by beauty, I don't mean the bright side or the silver lining, but beauty, like you know, this really rich creative soil that I could create from, or really profound empathy for others, or, you know, most treasured of all, getting to know myself a lot better.
1: I mean, I think that leads me to this question that I've really wanted to ask you since reading the book. And you wrote... At the very early stages of this book, this line about how you tried to lean out of toxic positivity. And you said, as you paraphrased before, I stopped using the phrase, I feel like I should, and instead tried to show up for the emotions I was feeling in that moment. I think the thing about reading things like this is I often hear stuff like that, like show up for your emotions, be present. And I want to know what does that look like in practice? Like, how would I actually do that if I wanted to kind of lean out of the toxic positivity that can saturate our
2: discourse? That's the question, right? Yeah. Like, how do I actually do that? I know I ask myself the same. (laughs) My guiding mantra for life, and I think the thing that I have to practice over and over to be present to what I'm going through is to pay attention. And that's not easy. I think it sounds easy, (laughs) but to really pay attention to what you're feeling is a full-time job. Something I have to work through a lot is you know, when I'm feeling these chaotic, irritable emotions, maybe you know, one day when I'm off the subway and I'm, I'm annoyed and I have so much to do, I don't want to pay attention at all. It's the last thing I want to do. I just want to get out of it. But to say, wow, I got a lot of chaos going on, or wow, I'm really irritable. Just saying that and almost like repeating it over and over actually helps me really calm down. And it's that attentiveness to my own body and saying, what are you trying to tell me? Like, what matters so much to you that you are tugging on my brain for attention? And asking, wow, we're really sad about that. Why are we so sad about that? It seems kind of small, right? But there must be something that really matters here. I think just continually paying attention And that can look like talking to someone about it, it can look like journaling, it can look like making art, it can look like exercising and being like really fully with yourself. But to pay attention to every feeling, that's the way that you show up.
3: I mean, for me, one example of you doing this in the book was when you went through the process of freezing your eggs at 32 and you realized that while freezing your eggs gave you this incredible sense of freedom as a woman, it also gave you this sense of resentment and I guess slight annoyance towards the men in your life or the men who have been in your life like your exes. Can you walk us through that time?
2: Yeah. I, at this point it's probably slight annoyance when I was going through it it was major annoyance. I <laughs> I started getting really irritated that I felt like I had this timeline that didn't apply to men. And this is very generally speaking of course, but that's how it felt. And I was dating a guy who's a lot older, who just had never even thought about if he wanted kids or not. And I thought, God, you have this amazing luxury. And I feel like there's this clock and I don't even know what the magical age would be. I'm just kind of feeling like this rush to find someone. And that wasn't serving me well at all. That was really interfering very poorly with my relationship. So when we broke up, I thought, you know what, I've got to do something in order to give myself permission to date with more thought and freedom and pleasure. For me, that looks like freezing my eggs. It may not look like that for everyone, but for me, that was what I needed to do to give myself that permission. And then I actually was able to take a year off of dating, which is something I so deeply needed and probably not something I would have done otherwise.
3: Do those threads of, I guess, working through the grief of your father and working through that relationship and at the same time working through the egg freezing process make you think about what kind of mom or parent you want to be? Do you think about that a
2: lot? (laughs) I do. It's funny, I was just having that conversation earlier because I've never really had much of an instinct for it, but I so adore the people and the things in my life, like inanimate objects. I'm very loving toward my possessions and my cat. And I just treasure the things and people in my life so much. And so it's a little hard to treasure an abstract concept. I've never met my child. I don't have one. So it's a little hard to think, oh, I just love this person who doesn't exist. But I feel like once they do come into my life, then I'll just, you know, I won't shut up about it. But I'm 34 now. And I've always thought, you know, when I'm 35, that'll be the the time to, to start this process. And that's coming up and I don't feel ready at all. So we'll see. We'll see. It'll be a mystery to unfold. I know there's a lot of ways that I, I would not be a great parent, but I think I will be very good at the emotional bit and really honoring the feelings that a child goes through. We have such a crisis in our world of robbing people of their feelings and saying, well, you shouldn't feel this way. And in North America, that tends to happen for girls around age 11 or 12, feeling like I'm supposed to be a certain way. I'm supposed to be good. I'm supposed to be nice. So I can't express these certain emotions. And for boys, that happens around five or six, where they feel like, oh, I, I can only be angry. I can't be sad. And I think that I will be able to be good <laughs> at really honoring whatever children are going through. Check back with me on that though. We'll, we'll see. I <laughs> well, noted that down. Hey,
1: Mary, <laughs> one of the most beautiful quotes I've read of yours is this one. It was in the last couple of pages of your book and I want to read it back to you. You wrote, because of all the self-help books I've amassed, I didn't know that you could heal with the love of another person. I thought you were supposed to do it all alone. I thought the worst thing that could happen to you, in fact, was depending on someone else for your emotional stability and then not being capable of pumping gas by yourself. I feel like so many of our listeners will relate to that. That idea of to be independent means healing alone and not leaning on people too much. So what changed your mind?
2: I think a lot about what the Antidote is, for a lot of the issues that bother me in society, one is this loneliness epidemic. Like I said, I think there's a lot of beauty in loneliness, but it doesn't have to be this hard. Another one is this kind of splintering of ourselves. There's many ways that we feel very divided across the world and make a lot of assumptions about other people and keep ourselves from intimate relationships with people who are different from us and the antidote is community that was something that i really prioritized when i moved to new york new york is known as a place where people can be very lonely in a you know a space with a lot of people and That's something I was very insistent on not experiencing. I I wanted to feel very close to my community. I wanted to feel very close to my neighbors and my surrounding area. And I really committed to community. When I moved to New York a few years ago, I decided to make commitments. So I decided I am going to rely on friends and I am going to involve myself in organizations, clubs, church, different groups that I will show up when I can. And I think I've always had a hesitancy to commit because I thought, well, I want to be free. I want to be able to do what I want. And I'm seeing now a couple of years in the beautiful fruits of commitment And wow, I mean, that has transformed me more than anything and more than any self-help book ever could.
3: What has it been like becoming a member of a church in adulthood? I feel like a lot of listeners of Shameless, they do really struggle with, I guess, having close ties to their religion in their 20s and their 30s. Like there's even this attitude that maybe you shouldn't be doing that or there's like something embarrassing I think a lot of our listeners sometimes come to us with to say I, I don't know I feel complicated feelings about my relationship with my own church but you did find the church and it has been hugely helpful for you just like you just touched on what is that process of kind of finding community and religion been like for you in adulthood
2: Wow, no one asks me that and that's a really good question and it's something that's really important to me I have a really complicated relationship with religion. I don't think I'm alone in that. I've always been drawn to it because it asks the big questions, which I love and I've always really been drawn to philosophy and poetry and people who are asking existential questions and religion does that really beautifully it's one of the pros for sure but you know in recent years I just kind of felt like why would I go to a church like most of them are really messed up most of them don't resonate with me I'd rather just go to brunch on Sundays honestly like I can have my own spiritual experience by myself I had a quite individualistic philosophy of that and then I found this one, which is so special. And I think getting to know my values really well helped with that because I knew right away, oh, this aligns perfectly with my values. These are people who are so committed to marginalized and poor people in New York. That's their number one priority. And all they want to do is be good and do good. And I can't think of another type of community, maybe someone else could, but I can't think of another community that meets just to do good, (laughs) like just to be better people. Who meets once a week just to do that? So I was so grateful to find them. And they've been the most like colorful, beautiful, vibrant community I've truly ever met and have made me such a stronger person and, and better citizen of New York.
1: Mari, our second last question for you is one we throw at everyone. It's a hypothetical. And we want to know, I want you to imagine that you walk into a cafe or somewhere and there's a table of people next to you who are talking about you. They might be your followers or acquaintances. What do you want them to say about you in that conversation?
2: I would hope that they say the thing that I pray every morning to do for people, which is make people feel valued in my presence. I have been lucky enough to meet people in my life who make you feel like you're their best friend, and you just met them. And that's the person I want to be. I want people to walk away from an interaction with me feeling like they were really valued and felt really important when I talked to them. And that could be, you know, also (laughs) through the digital space. (laughs)
3: I think that's a gorgeous answer. And our final question, again, we ask this to everyone, is what is success to you? With all of this in mind, how do you define success in your own life?
2: Success is living the life that you built for yourself. I always wanted to move to New York. I always wanted really good friends. I always wanted to come home and feel like my home looked like a place that reflected what I love and who I love. And sometimes I get on a, you know, comparison spiral, or I feel really bad about some external validation falling through. And I take a look around at my apartment, which is filled with my favorite things and places I've been and people I love. And I think I built this life, and now I'm living it. And that's what feels like success to me.
1: Mari, that is beautiful and so has been so much of this conversation today. We are so, so grateful for your time and especially for all of your work. Like your work has and does mean a lot for everyone listening today. So we are so grateful that you spent this time with us.
2: And congratulations on the book. Yes. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
1: The best book cover I think I've ever seen in my
3: entire life.
2: (laughs) Oh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the lovely Mari Andrew If you want to buy Mari's book My Inner Sky, we will pop the link in our show notes. You can also find her on Instagram at by Andrew. If you liked this chat, may we recommend an In Conversation we did with Zoe Foster-Blake Mari's actually done a lot of the illustrations for a few of Zoe's books so you may recognise some of her work there. If you are interested in that chat, we will pop the link in our show notes too. As for us, well as always we're on instagram at shameless podcast to support the show click follow on spotify and subscribe on apple podcasts we will see you guys on thursday for our weekly pop culture app bye
0: hello guys mish here i am the co-founder of shameless media Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through